Welcome to episode 34 of the Creative Strings podcast with our special guest, Joan Griffing. Hello, and welcome to the Creative Strings podcast. I'm Christian Howes, violinist, educator, and music business entrepreneur. I hope these interviews will inspire you to be creative in your life, in your art, in your business, in every way. So without further ado, let's get to it. When I was growing up, people used to always say that you should go into music only if you feel you don't have a choice. If you're going into a career to make money, there's other things you can do. People say, well, if it's something you feel you have to do, then you should do it. Because otherwise, you know, it's going to be a struggle or it may be a struggle. So for those of us that made that choice to go into music, we were inspired by this feeling that it's what I've got to do. We had that passion around it at some point. It could have been when you were in high school or it could have been in conservatory or college when you felt that compelling like love for the music, the passion that kept you awake at night, that kept you in the practice room. And that's why we went into music. The thing is that when people get out of college and they get into the real life of being a musician, the drudgery sets in. <laughs> in fact, I remember even before getting out of college, I had some professional gigs with the Columbus Symphony and I went to work and I was shocked to see the attitudes of some of the musicians in the orchestra. And I mean, no disrespect to any of them. You know, it's part of, it's part of what it is to be a, a professional musician doing it day in and day out. But I would notice the musicians coming in and just their, their attitude, it couldn't have been more different than the attitude that I felt from my peers at Ohio State University. There was this sense that everybody lived for the music. In, in college, but in, in the orchestra, I got this sense that people were kind of showing up, but they weren't always happy to be there. So here's the thing. How do we keep that passion alive? Or better yet, how do we continue to understand or even re-articulate why we play music and what makes it so important for us to continue to make music? And as we change, as we go through different phases of our life or our career, you know, that reason could change as well. And I think it's really important for us to ask those questions because ultimately we want to feel fulfilled by the music that we make. And we also want that music in our life to be integrated with our own personal development and with whatever contribution we're trying to make to our communities is getting to the heart of these types of questions and telling stories about how different people, different musicians, how they grapple with this, um, that really is what motivates me to want to bring this podcast out. And today's guest, I think, is an amazing example of someone who has done this. Joan Griffin is a classical violinist, and she is taught at the private level a collegiate level for many years she's been a freelance orchestral chamber player and soloist for many years she's an amazing classical violinist and a well-rounded classical musician and part of what i think is so interesting about her story is that she chose at this point in her career at this point in her life to take a sabbatical and to take a journey her journey was to uncover deeper meanings for what it is to be a musician. And that to me is super inspiring. You'll hear in this interview how she went to New Zealand 
and how she learned there about ways in which music is being used for peace and reconciliation, prison reforms, and to create healing between individuals in conflict and between cultures in conflict. It's a really fascinating story. And it would be hard for us to invest the time to bring these stories to you properly without support. And we have support from two really important sponsors. They are Electric Violin Shop and Yamaha. I just want to tell you briefly about them both before we get into this interview. So as you probably know, Yamaha is a company that I've worked with for over 20 years. They support music education in so many tremendous ways. Obviously, they also make electric string instruments and acoustic bowed string instruments. I encourage you to check them out. And one of the best places where you can check out their instruments is Electric Violin Shop. I love Electric Violin Shop because their whole team knows very intimately about everything that an electric string player would need. They offer amazing phone service. You can just call them with any questions you have. I get questions every week from people asking me about this, that, the other, whether it's pickups, amplifiers, electric violins, all this other kind of stuff. I just say, call Electric Violin Shop because they'll answer all your questions. So give them a call. Just go to their website, electricviolinshop.com forward slash creative strings. And uh, the phone number's right there. And make sure you ask them about their Yamaha line of electric violins. Also, by the way, Electric Violin Shop has a great podcast. It's called Rockstar Violinist. If you like the Creative Strings podcast, you should check out Rockstar Violinist. All right, here we go. Let's go to this interview with my amazing guest, Joan Griffin. today with Dr. Joan Griffing, a friend of mine. We go way back. Thank you so much, Joan, for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. It's an honor and privilege to be speaking with you. I just want to come straight out and talk about one of the main reasons that I, that I reached out to you, and, and there's a lot to talk about, but, but first I want to talk about your projects. You took a sabbatical and you did a research project related to the role of music in peace and conflict. Could you just tell us about that? That to me is just fascinating. Well, I think anybody that's a musician is interested in how music can help change the world and what kind of difference can we make rather than just getting up and giving a concert here or there and expect people to come to our concerts too. So I've always been very interested in taking my students out to perform and to interact with different people in the community and just having music be a bridge to other people and bringing people together, even if they're not like-minded in, you know, certain ways, politically or ethnically or religiously, but then music can really be a common bond. And so that's always been an interest of mine. So when I had sabbatical, which is uh, one of the, the privileges of teaching at a university, you get to take some time off from your regular duties. And so I was looking around to find a, a country where I thought that music played a, a, a very interesting role. So I, I kind of landed on New Zealand because to me, they have really probably gone the furthest in having the, the two cultures there, which may be somewhat uh, in conflict 
they really have have worked very well and come up with positive ways of working together. It's a small country, so they really can't live that far apart. There's a lot of close proximity in New Zealand. And so the two cultures have had a lot in common and a lot of uh, cross boundaries quite a bit. And also the indigenous society, music is a very integral part of their culture. And so when you come on to their marae, which is the place they often live together and um, a community of Maori, you are welcomed with music. And a lot of this ceremony revolves around music. Music is seen as the breath, so everybody can sing. It's not like only a few people are chosen who have talent, who are who are allowed to do music. It's everybody. It's a part of life. It's a part of breath. So everybody can sing. Everybody participates in music. And then the other thing I really liked about their uh, cultures there is that when you in when you finish a speech or you give some kind of presentation, a song is presented at the end as a conclusion for that speech. So just music is very integral to the Maori society. And the way that I saw it integrated with the settler society, I mean, there there, there were quite a few societies that came in and settled in, in New Zealand. The Chinese have a big um, population, but also there was a very big influx of Europeans that came in, started out with the whaling economy that brought a lot of Europeans. And so a lot of those um, people have remained and have settled in New Zealand and now, you know, basically run, run, run the island. But the, the people there are very interested in reconciling. They have used music also as a way to bring these two societies together. And so I was really interested to find out these specific ways that, that people have reached out and, and used music as a way to bring the two cultures together. This is so awesome, Joan. And just because we're friends and I know you, I'm, I'm not surprised, but I'm still surprised. And it's, I think it's such an awesome subject that you've gotten into this. Have you ever thought about the difference between the notion of having participatory music, you know, like what you're describing, where music is sort of a part of everything versus our tradition of learning classical music and how we're sort of, you know, isolated sometimes and it's sort of institutionalized in a way. I don't know if I'm describing it right, but, you know, there's practice rooms and you've got to have air conditioning and people would never think about playing outside or something like that. Did that, that, that ever occur to you? Yeah, I mean, that definitely came up because in, in Western society, it's only those who have talent or the, only those who you know, have the right education or started at a certain age or, you know, only those people are seen as viable performers. I mean, it's probably more what you do where it's, it's very much a conversation with people. It's not just getting up there and being the star of the show. You know, music is a way to, you know, interact with others. And it's very much that way in the Maori culture too. You know, everybody's singing. It's just like everybody's speaking and everybody's breathing. And it's, it's something everybody does. Whereas in our culture, it's, it's, you know, you have to pass certain tests. You have to make sure you're on track. You have to make sure you, you know, pass your jury and your, your, your recital exams. And, and in other cultures, it's really seen as something that everybody takes part in. And I think that's just a much healthier uh, way of expressing ourselves. Everybody can express themselves through music. That's great. That's great. And, and I mean, I should mention for our listeners, too, I mean, that you, you're a highly, like, an elite classical violin player and a professor. And, and so I think for people who come from our background of that classical training, it makes us do a double take when we kind of confront that. So that's great. So restorative justice 
was a theme that came up in this, right? And, and I mean, can you talk about how this concept of restorative justice and music came together around your research? Yes. Howard Zare was um, on the faculty at my university until he retired. And he was the one that basically came up with the idea of restorative justice. And that's where you get people that have been harmed. And then those people that have done the harm, they, they bring them together only if the two parties are willing. Uh, they're not going to force people to, to, to meet. But it's a chance for, you know, for the person that was harmed to say, this is how, you know, your crime affected me. I want to have that opportunity to speak to you about that. And then it's an, also an opportunity for the person who did that crime to look into the face of that person that they hurt and to possibly say they're sorry and, and to make amends. And so when people can really look at each other in the eyes and come to grips with, you know, the harm that has happened and then to, to, to reconcile that in some way. Now, again, that's not going to be for every crime and for every, um, in every individual, but it's, it's been very effective and they use it quite a bit in New Zealand. They have used restorative justice in the court system. They have used it in the prison system. One of the gentlemen I have spoke to in Wellington was actually a jazz drummer in his earlier days, but then he became a, a, a police officer. And so what he does when he meets with young men who've been in prison or are in prison, he goes to them first as a jazz musician. And he says, hey, you guys, let's let's do some music together. And so he builds that bond through music with them. And so they, they get to know him first as just another musician. And then eventually comes around and says, hey, I'm also a police officer and I want to work with you on finding ways for you to you know, move on with your life and, and this kind of thing. So so he, he uses music as a way to make a bond with somebody so that somebody doesn't automatically see him as the enemy when they, you know, realize that he's a, a police officer. And other people that I've I've spoken to, uh, well, this, this judge I spoke to in Auckland was is very interested in having music be part of their 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 reconciliation. So, you know, maybe if somebody committed a crime, could they go out and use music to pay back the, the person that they harmed? Um, can they perform in, in some capacity? So again, using music as a tool for them to reconcile in, in the restorative justice program. So would that be like singing a song of remorse, or, for example? Doesn't really, doesn't necessarily need to respond to that particular crime that happened. You know, it could. I mean, people do, they, they do use music to express themselves. Um, there was a really interesting project that took place in the, in the prisons. They um, had musicians that went into the prisons and worked with inmates to, and these were usually people that were going to be coming out of jail, to use music to tell their story. For some, this was the first time that they felt comfortable saying what happened to them or how did they get off the tracks or what, what was their experience growing up. And so they, they use music as a tool to express themselves. And, and for some of these people, it's the first time they were able to express themselves. And then some of them have gone beyond once they've gotten out of prison and, and become musicians and had, had a career that way. So that, that's a really powerful um, set of stories. The, the gentleman that designed that program has, hold, uh, has a whole series on um, public television and has been asked to institute similar programs around the world of bringing wow. musicians into prisons to help people, you know, use music as a tool to help them tell their stories. 
Oh, that's wonderful. I, I'm going to have to get that uh, the name from you later because I want to reach out to that person. <laughs> you... educator or if you are a fan of music education look up this free magazine made by Yamaha called support ed you can simply just google Yamaha support ed ed and you can download um, copies of this magazine or you can subscribe and you'll get four copies a year it's a wonderfully produced resource for music educators and it's totally free You know, I, I didn't necessarily intend to bring this up, but I mean, I, I, I know that you know that I spent time in prison and, uh, and you know, that was, that's part of probably what draws me to this story from you is because it was really some experiences in prison, musical experiences that really changed my uh, perspective about music in many ways. And some of these themes really resonate to me. I guess if I had to describe it, what what I felt was that the presence of music in prison seemed to infuse humanity in an environment that otherwise felt alienated of humanity. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a sense of a void, an absence of trust, an absence of freedom, an absence of intimacy. And that void, I believe, is what feels like violence. And the presence of music I thought was a palpable sense of, of humanity being infused back in so that I can remember how much emotion it made me feel. You know, I could, I could like be in touch with my emotions when there was music around. Whereas when there wasn't music around in prison, you're very, you know, you can be depressed or just consumed with fear or just, you know, uh, numbed, you know, or whatever, or angry. Whereas um, the music will really allow you to express in deeper ways your truer feelings. And I think that I also noticed, and these are themes that you touch upon in some of the texts of your research, but I also noticed that music allowed people to come together. It allowed people to be, feel more at ease, maybe for the, the reasons I just mentioned, because they felt more human, but also there was a, a sense of bonding with other convicts or inmates through doing music together or hearing you know walking around the yard you would hear music and you could just see that everybody's attitude was a little lighter well yeah i mean i think what you're talking about would be exactly what you see in these videos i think it was called um, music from the inside out and i met with the the filmmaker about his his project he was an actor also and then he ended up taking music into the prisons but you can see it on you know when you watch these videos it, it takes place over a period of like you know six months and they, they show them going in the first time and you know the musicians are kind of wary you know walking to, to prison and then you can see you know the the inmates being a little standoffish and 
and not sure what these people are, what they want to do. And then by the end, you know, they're they're making amazing music and you can just see life coming back into their faces and into their voices. And so it's very palpable. And, you know, it's your your story is especially inspiring to, to me, Chris, because you have used what could have been a very negative experience in your life to turn it into a positive. Everybody has negative experiences in their life, you know. They might not all be as as you know, you, people don't speak about them as much as you have, but but everybody has something that's negative in their life, and everybody can use that to turn it into something positive. That's a big story of of music in in New Zealand, and this this prison uh, setting is just one way. But we all deal with these things in our lives, and what we all need to do is learn how to not have them be a noose around our, le- our neck, but a way for them to learn, to learn how to grow and to individual. Your trio is called Musica Harmonia, and the CD you guys did is uh, the chamber music of Gwyneth Walker, among other works that you've done. Can you say more about why you chose to do uh, African-American spirituals? We came across one piece that we just really enjoyed playing. It was called Midnight Child, Charles Washington. And we really enjoyed performing that piece together. And so we thought, well, what, what, I wonder what else is out there along these lines. And there, we, we couldn't find anything. And so we had this relationship with Gwyneth Walker. And so we asked her to write a piece for us based on, on American African-American. So that's how we came across, that's how we came into that piece. You know, the, I mean, the spirituals are just so rich in, you know, in harmony and melody and rhythm. And they're super fun to, to play. And, and, and Gwyneth does amazing arrangements of them. So it's, it's just been a really wonderful way for us to connect, you know, peace building and, and music. And some of that's tied to the lyrics. So even if, even if you're performing this music instrumentally, people could still refer to the words. And there's, there's something related to this peacemaking mission yes you know when we do this spirituals almost everybody recognizes the the melodies and so then it it draws them in immediately too in addition to managing conflicts between countries or between entire cultures within one society is this does this equally apply just if you have a conflict with one other person i mean so like if you're a pacifist that means you're not going to like punch somebody if they call you name or if they if they do something to you is, is that 
Is that correct, or no? I'm just curious? Well, that would certainly be take, that would certainly be using our skills to um, the best way possible. I would say that uh, you know we're all human, and so we all do have conflicts with others. I mean, I th I think that you know, obviously, if somebody's standing there with a gun and going to shoot you, you can't say, "Hey, I'm going to play my violin for you, or let's sing a song," you know. But I think you know, in, in some of the you know more dire straits around the world, music could be used more as a reconciliation tool. Once the killing is stopped, once the wars are over, then, then musicians could go in and use music as a way to bring people together and for to help children overcome trauma and that kind of thing. So, yeah, I mean, you, you can't be naive about it and think that, oh, we're just never going to have any wars and then we're never going to have any, any you know, murdering. I mean, that would be idealistic, right? So I don't want to think of, of music as, you know, some kind of Pollyanna, but I think it could be a tool for people around the world to use in appropriate situations when it could be seen as a productive tool. I don't have any ideas that it's going to just music is going to stop people from killing each other because that's probably never going to happen. Well, you, you mentioned the idea of, of helping children overcome trauma with music, and I'd love to see if you agree with this observation. As trained classical musicians, I wonder if you agree that oftentimes we sort of lose sight of the bigger picture, of how music does have the ability to make this impact on people and how we can serve people and impact them because we're so focused on, like, our our Paganini, whatever the the fine nuances of our bow arm, for example, or our left hand. Do you agree with that ob observation? Or oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you know, I think musicians type tend to be type A personalities, and that they're always going for perfection. And you know, if you're on the audition circuit, you have to just focus on everything being perfect. You know, it, and you have to get used to you know not being chosen. You know, you have to be you, you have to you have to have a thick skin when when it comes to trying to make a living as a performing performing musician. So it's, it can be very tough. But I think that ultimately it's not it's not about perfection. You know, I love hearing amazing soloists, and I love hearing you play, Chris. I have reached a very high level of of artistry, but that doesn't mean that you have to. Everybody has to do that to be able to use their musical gifts, whatever they are. Uh, to make a difference in people's lives. And, you know, one of my students, I, when I took them to a halfway house to interact with some men that had just been out of jail and that were, um, you know, living in a house together, and we went in there, we went, and, you know, students played for them, and, and she said, you know, it's so cool just to think that I can make a difference in someone's life. And she said, it really made all the difference. All those years of all the years of practice were really worth it for me to have that experience. And sometimes it's just, a, you know, a matter of, of showing up. You know, people said, why? I, you know, I never thought that you would want to, anybody would want to come here and, and, and play for us, you know. Um, and so just, it's, you're, again, you're just, it's, it's a way of showing respect for other people and, um, you know, giving something of yourself to others. And it doesn't mean that you have to be a superstar to be able to to uh, to contribute to society in that way, but I always want to tell my students keep practicing. You know, we can always do something better. We can't just check that off the list. Okay, I've done the Sibelius Concerto. Fix that. Well, no, that's not exactly right. You know, something can be better about it. And so the the, the ongoing challenge is worth getting up every day for. But until I get to that peak moment, I can still use music as a way to help my my fellow. Um, human beings on earth.
At the beginning of this episode, you heard me talk a little bit about the motivation for the Creative Strings podcast to bring stories that are going to help you think about why you play music. Stories that can help you in your own personal journey to find, you know, personal development and fulfillment and, and to make the biggest contribution you can, however it is that you're a musician. Well, that's part of the reason that I founded Creative Strings as a 501c3 nonprofit. Five years ago, we became nonprofit. I wanted to separate what I was doing, you know, as a musician with a vision, a vision to bring our community together and to, to try to amplify my own uh, contribution somehow. And I'm still trying to figure that out. But Creative Strings has a clear mission and it's to support music education. And we have three main ways that we do that. It's through providing online curriculum, such as this podcast and the ongoing videos that I put up at Christian House 2 on YouTube. Also, we do it via outreach. We do visits to school programs all over the country and all over the world every year. If you're a teacher in an orchestra or a teacher in a private studio, reach out to me to explore the possibility of setting up a visit with your students. And finally, we do it through our annual conferences. The Creative Strings Workshop, as our conference is known, has been around for 17 years. And this year, we're doing it in six cities around the world. So definitely, if you're a teacher, a pro, an amateur, a student, we would love for you to explore our workshops, find out where they are, and consider coming to one. And if you have a question about it, you can always reach out to me a question about any of these things at chris at christianhouse.com or just go to christianhouse.com and click education. You'll find it all right there. I think as classical musicians, a lot of us feel, you know, like you said, because, because we're so aware that there's so much room for growth as musicians, we're kind of holding back from sharing with the world. I mean, some people might even say that, like, you know, we're, we're ripping people off, you know, and maybe we do that out of this sense of modesty, like, oh, you know, I haven't prepared it. It's not good enough. So it's not worth being shared with you today or whatever. Maybe we think that's modest, but I think we're really ripping people off because, like you said, like people, they feel grateful when you show up and perform music for them. And it's a way of, of really giving to people. And so when you're being modest as a classical musician by shutting yourself in your practice room and only performing when you've got air conditioning and a press release and a conductor and a page turner and an accompanist, you know, how many people are you ripping off? This is, I'm not saying this is the answer, but to me, this is one perspective that, that we could reflect upon because not only is music infinite in terms of what we can learn and how we can continue to get better. There's another side of it that I think is equally true, which, which your anecdote speaks to, which is that almost any musician can really, really powerfully impact other people, no matter what level they're at. Right. You know, and, and I think the, the, the culture that, that you were visiting in, in New Zealand it's, it's speaking to that, that every human being has a voice that's beautiful and can really impact people. So I think it's not enough for us to pay lip service to it. I feel like as classical musicians, it's up to us 
to literally take it to the streets. Yeah. You know, like, you know, how can we take our music and perform it more unashamedly? You know, how can we be more giving with that music? And for a lot of us, we have to really get a little bit creative. I mean, Christmas, you walk and knock on your neighbor's doors and play a song for them. Do you go out on the street corner and just play one day? Do you, you know, do you play in your backyard? We don't want to aggravate our neighbors, but at the same time, <laughs> you don't need all the trappings. You think right. you need trappings, but you don't even need an instrument. You can yeah. beat you can beat out beats on a picnic table, and you can rap, you know, and you can sing, and you can accompany yourself, and that's what cats do in the in the joint. Um, and and that was why, fifteen years ago, when I started my camp, I thought we're going to play music on everywhere, in the street corners, on the churches, and wherever place, because I think it shakes us up as classical musicians, because we're so used to just being shut in the conservatory, literally right. shut in our practice rooms. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think part of the fear of, of musicians is being judged, and part of that is they judge themselves too harshly. Um, but, you know, I think you hear people say, oh, but, you know, those, why should they come hear me? I have to be as good as that CD that that person has at home. And, you know, we all know that CDs can be touched up and <laughs> right. you know, fixed a little bit in the studio. And so I think people have a fear that they have to be as good as the CD or else, or else people aren't going to want to come to hear them. So, But then again, that's all about the concert hall and the concert experience. But I, I agree with you that if we can just get music happening more places. And what, what we did at my university a couple of years ago was something I stole from the Virginia Symphony because I'm a member of the Virginia Symphony. They did something called Art Attacks. And so I did it at my university. We It was actually a Christmas season and we just went around and showed up and we, you know, we played duets or we sang. We just knocked in the door, you know, and came into an office or went into the cafeteria or just went to the president's suite. And we just started singing Christmas carols or playing duets for them, you know, and it just brought such joy. You know, everybody's so frantic and, you know, so busy at exam season and that, that kind of time. Um, it just it just helped everybody smile and relax and, and enjoy the, the season and just take a moment out of their life to say, hey, that was great. You know, I really appreciate you guys coming down and thinking of us. And, and I must say, when I did that, I went out with my students and I went to places on campus I had never been to before. And I met people that I'd seen their names on email, but I'd never met them before. So there all of a sudden was a big there was a lot of human connection happening there. And those are those are always good things. We we do so much technology, and we technology is great. Here we're doing Skype today, but um, but that human connection, I think we want to uh, make sure that we keep working at. And and music is just a fundamental way of connecting with others. Thank you. 
Well, I, I really want to ask you though about you know your perspective as a woman in music, and whether or not there's a connection. If you feel there's a connection with your interest in peacemaking, and I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. I think everybody would agree that you know what we mostly know about in the classical music world is male composers, right? So Mozart and Bach and Beethoven, of course. Then, then we you know have recently learned about Fanny Mendelssohn or about you know other other women that that did compose. You know Clara Schumann. I mean, there there are many now. Uh, Lily Boulanger, many famous women that have come to the fore. And so I, I think that what I have been interested in doing is just finding music and supporting current women composers to, to let their voices be heard, you know, to celebrate um, the accomplishments of, of, of women musicians. You know, so just, just to be a part of that, um, that's, that's been an exciting piece that, that I have done with my colleagues in music or harmonia as well. It's just that's great. But do you think women have a maybe a, a, a strong role in that in sort of changing the consciousness of, of the world and helping people resolve conflicts better, I guess, or in more peaceful ways? You know, women often do have different personality traits. I mean you, you will hear some women say if women ran the world there may be fewer wars and they might find ways to come together. But you know, women have, have conflicts with each other too and you know it, uh, but but I, I you know I would certainly love to see more women, you know, represented in in government, represented in CEOs, represented in politics, uh, uh, more equal to what what the population represents. So I, I just think it it makes sense to have much more diversity, you know, across the board as far as you know uh, religious representation and uh, all, all across the board, not just gender too. So it's not just one group of people. So I think that genders or, or religions, all cultures, but as far as music, you know, I think that that actually is a field where women have been given multiple opportunities and, and have have shown their talents and their, their achievements have, have come to the fore. So, I, you know, I would say that as far as composers go, it, it is, um, it's been an area that's just been of interest to me, whether, whether it's necessarily peacemaking, it's just allowing some other voices to be heard. And when, when all voices are heard, then it is going to be hopefully a more equal and, and peaceful society. I'm curious, where were you in your career when the uh, curtain was established for classical auditions? Or had it already been established when you started auditioning for orchestras? I think I pretty much always did auditions behind a curtain. So um, I mean, my, my, my DMA dissertation was on orchestra auditions. And so I had a questionnaire um, that I um, sent out, and I got about 65 responses, I think. Um, my dissertation is actually now on a website that uh, called, I think, uh, some kind of violin audition website. Um, but it, it was really interesting to read. And what I did was I interviewed concert masters, because I figured concert masters are the people really responsible for who's hiring, who's doing the job. And so it was really interesting to hear their perspectives on the use of the curtain and the idea of fairness and in auditions. I think in, in orchestra auditions, what I have seen is there definitely is a care for and a desire for fairness. In 
the jazz world right now, it's a, it's a real issue. Um, maybe in the similar way that it was, I don't know, 30, 40 years ago for women in classical music. But I, I think that there, I don't know how much you've heard about it or if you're aware of it, but I think I'm definitely very aware of there's a sort of a disproportionality of men in jazz. And there's some women that are really speaking up a lot more now about how there's a lack of representation on faculty in jazz programs and lack of opportunity for women to be in jazz. Is there anything that you would want to share with perhaps younger women who are, you know, trying to make it in, in, in jazz, for example, or another aspect of the music business? Or I mean, I would just say, you know, what my father always told me is just pursue what you love and things will work out. You know, we, we, life is too short to try and force yourself to do a job or a career that you don't love. You know, it has to be something where you want to get up every day and work at and get better at and strive for and have that be your means to make the world a better place. So uh, I think that's true for anybody, you know, male, female. And I think that there are people out there that you can turn to for mentors. And, you know, there are women that have been successful in every aspect of music. And so I would hope that they would help other women find a place and in, encourage those those people to, to use their talents. I mean, the main thing that I think in music is that you have to decide for yourself if you're going to do it. You know, if you get turned down in an audition, and if that's going to turn you away from music, that's not for you. You know, you have to be willing to get back up over and over again. And you have to be willing to go where the job is. And you have to be willing to live apart from your spouse. I mean, you have to you have to really be willing to make a lot of sacrifices in, in music. And that might not be for everybody. And that doesn't mean that you're a lesser person for it. It just means you, you have different priorities. And that's fine. That's absolutely fine. And people should only pursue music if that is their passion if they have to be doing it's a part of who they are and that's what brings them life every day right so if they can see themselves doing something else there's no shame in doing music on the side and and but i think if you have that passion every person should be encouraged to develop themselves to the as much as they can and and to use their gifts and their passions to to better society i love that well, I'm going to wrap this up. We're going to put up links to some of Dr. Joan Griffin's, her research project about the role of music in peace and conflict. Hopefully we'll put some other links up to things you referred to here, like your dissertation, the documentary you mentioned about music programming for convict populations in New Zealand. And uh, we're going to put that all at christianhouse.com for sure. If you go to christianhouse.com, that's H-O-W-E-S. Just click on the blog and this podcast will pop up. Or you, if you haven't already subscribed, just subscribe to Creative Strings Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, etc., etc. Um, look for Joan's Trio CD. Uh, the trio is called Musica Harmonia and the CD is Chamber Music of Gwyneth Walker. It's also called When the Spirit Sings. That's the name of one of the pieces on it. So it's When the Spirit Sings, Chamber Music of Gwyneth Walker. Wonderful. I just want to tell you that I admire you a lot and I have so much respect for the work that you've done and, and having known you for, for a while, I have nothing but respect and 
great fondness and admiration for you on all levels and just really appreciate you sharing with uh with us well i appreciate the opportunity chris thank you so much Huge thanks to our sponsors, Yamaha and Electric Violin Shop, for supporting this and other episodes of Creative Strings Podcast. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Creative Strings Podcast. You can always reach out to me at chris at christianhouse.com. We would really appreciate it if you leave a review, subscribe to the podcast, and share it. We really want to spread the podcast wherever we can. And as I said, definitely... um, take a look at the creative strings workshops we're in six cities in 2019 and they happen every year we would love for you to come and the sooner you look into it the sooner you'll be able to take advantage of our early bird discounts get info about the workshops just go to christianhouse.com and click education or reach out to me on email i'm always interested in your feedback love hearing stories from people online people send me emails about it i always get back to your emails also running into people on the road it's awesome when i run into someone at a school where i'm giving a clinic or at a conference or at a concert and someone will come up and say you know i've been listening to the podcast and i really enjoy it that keeps me motivated to keep these coming to you so please do share your feedback reach out if i can help with anything anytime thank you so much